I've gone through in the past talks and documentation. I've given that documentation on Bernays and the art of mass manipulation, whole nations used by its sciences, which Bernays did not invent. They were already known and kept by those who in power. You don't share power with people. You lose power if you share it, if you want to dominate others. Therefore, you always keep things secret. Bernays did not dream up this kind of stuff by himself, how to create a whole society of consumers and alter their behavior by doing so. Old, old sciences. And we're going to go into this in more depth after this break, like in a few minutes. Hi folks, I am Alan Watt and we're cutting through the matrix. Yesterday I was reading from a book called The Cultural Cold War by Francis Stoner Saunders. Excellent book, although it doesn't tell all of the story. You never get all of the story in one book. Basically, this author starts with the founding of the OSS, which split off into the CIA during the Cold War. And she doesn't go in to the fact that there already were organizations running the Anglo-American establishment before the OSS was created. But she does reveal a lot of good information. She's done a lot of homework. She's done a lot of studies and archives to get this information that's scattered all over the place. And she tells you, basically, how the culture was created by the CIA who was given responsibility for spreading a particular type of culture across the whole of Europe and they set up offices in London and in France and in the Scandinavian countries and all of this kind of stuff and basically for an outsider it would seem to be a form of, of retaliation against the communist regime the communist regime was at that time giving to the workers. They were trying to introduce opera and ballet and this kind of stuff. They looked upon the West as being decadent. And therefore the idea, supposedly, was to create a form of decadence, but also completely alter the, the culture of the Western countries in the process. They funded artists that could never make a living outside a mental hospital. They funded authors. They could never get a novel sold. They were so poor. They, they made them stars, some of them. They brought on board a good part of the, the Frankfurt School. They also brought on board a lot of the Trotskyites as well. Why on earth the CIA and MI6 be using Trotskyites until you go into the history of Trotsky? and who funded Trotsky and why he fled the coup from Russia and I will be going into that in later talks getting back to this book The Cultural Cold War they talk about novels now who would think about novels novels shape your mind it's a great tool for shaping the mind mainly before TV and even, even afterwards the futurists for instance wrote science fiction 
describing a whole change in, through society down through ages. And I'll bet you anything, some of the big sci-fi writers like Arthur C. Clarke were members of it. Guaranteed. Because they shape our minds. We grew up thinking in possibilities. They introduce the possibilities through their novels. And then when the real things start to occur in real life, we think it's quite natural. It's called predictive programming. In page 244 of this book, it says, In the mid-50s, 1950s, far from diminishing the CIA's presence in the cultural life of the period, and now increased, from New York, Lawrence de Novel, wrote to Josephson. Josephson, by the way, was put in charge of this, this big area they called Congress for Cultural Freedom. They love doublespeak, don't they? This is with ideas for discussion and encounter. They, they run all the magazines. They even funded and started up magazines and put their own agents in as the head editors. It's, it's astonishing. And it says here, with ideas for discussion and encounter, including a piece in the subject of the conscience of the individual versus the requirements of hierarchy, which Josephson recommended to Spender and Crystal. They presumably were ignorant of the special interest Josephson had in the intricacies of such a subject. Very important subject, isn't it? The individual versus the requirements of hierarchy. Other agency men were unable to resist the pull of the pen. Jack Thompson, these are all agents. Jack Thompson continued to write for scholarly journals like the Hudson Review. In 61, he published The Founding of English Meter, a brilliant study of English poetry. Robbie Macaulay wrote for Kenyan Review, The New Republic, The Irish University Review, Partisan Review, and The New York Times Book Review. During his tenure at the CIA, he continued to write fiction, notably The Disguises of Love and The End of Pity and Other Stories. If you go into Arthur Kessler and the writings of him, his novels, he was also funded by this organization via uh, MI5 and MI6. London firm of Hodder and Stoughton published a book on Afghanistan by Edward S. Hunter, another CIA operative who used the cover of a freelance writer. That's very common. You can travel all over the world that way. And roamed Central Asia for years regarding intelligence, you see. Frederick Prager, a propagandist for the American military government in post-war Germany, published between 20 and 25 volumes in which the CIA had an interest, either in the writing, the publication itself, or the distribution. Prager said they either reimbursed him directly for the expenses of publication or guaranteed, usually through a foundation, the big foundations again, the purchase of enough copies to make it worthwhile. Do you remember Bill Clinton's supposed autobiography was a bestseller before it was printed? Remember? Books differ from all other propaganda media, wrote Chief of the CIA's Covert Action Staff primarily because one single book can significantly change the reader's attitude and action to an extent unmatched by the impact of any other single medium, such as to make books the most important weapon of strategic, long-range propaganda. The CIA's clandestine books program was run, according to the same source, with the following aims in mind, get books published or distributed abroad without revealing any U.S. influence, by covertly subsidizing foreign publications or booksellers, get books published which should not be contaminated by any overt tie-in with the U.S. government, especially if the position of the author is delicate. 
get books published for operational reasons, regardless of commercial viability. So it didn't matter if it's a dud book. Initiate and subsidize indigenous, national, or international organizations for book publishing or distributing purposes. They set up most of the big international organizations that are at the front today. Remember the thousand points of light I keep talking about, the NGOs that George Bush Sr. mentioned in his New World Order speech. Stimulate the writing of politically significant books by unknown foreign authors, either by directly subsidizing the author if covert contact is feasible or indirectly through literary agents or publishers. The New York Times alleged in 1977 that the CIA had been involved in the publication of at least a thousand books. But it's, it's astonishing, you see. They also went to the movie industry as well, but continue with the books here to do with what they call pen. It says, page 366, having scored a victory at the Bled Congress, John Hunt started preparing for the next pen conclave. Uh, that's, the, that's the World Association of Writers, pen. Judy took place in New York the following June. This was the first time in 42 years that the American Center played host to an international pen congress. With stakes this high, the CIA decided to bring out the full battery of its covert arsenal. The Congress for Cultural Freedom, for one, was to play a significant role. It had already given a thousand dollars, pounds actually, to Carver in June '65 to start organizing the New York campaign, which was fine-tuned over lunch with Hunt at the Chanterelle restaurant on Brompton Road. The Ford Foundation made a timely intervention, awarding American Pen. DN, a substantial grant, $75,000 in January 66, and the Rockefeller Foundation coughed up an additional $25,000. The CIA also channeled money to American Pen through the Asia Foundation and the Free Europe Committee. With such investments at stake, John Hunt wrote to David Carver on 9th of February 66, telling him that he thought it wise to try and limit their liability. So everything you read too, you see, that which grabs your spirit and carries you away into great realms is put out by these guys. You wouldn't want people to have their own ideas and go off in different directions that may be contrary to your agenda, your plan. So you make sure you fill their heads full of your fiction, that your fiction is programmed to take them along a particular path of programming. That's why they call television programming as well. And page 287. Movies, like propaganda, trade in fiction, but if this fiction is adroitly manufactured, it will be taken for reality. To perform this function well, Hollywood had long understood the need to cut its mythical patterns to suit the prevailing political and social mood. I mentioned the movie before, it's called Hollywoodism. It's quite fantastic. If you want to see the power of movies, try and get the series from the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, it's called Sin Cities. It's fantastic to show you how a few people with an idea can alter the whole of society. 
Hollywood had long undertaken to, to need, this need to cut its mythical patterns to suit prevailing political and social mood, thus had switched from making anti-Bolshevik films in the 1920s and 30s to glorifying Russia as a wartime ally. That's how fast they can change a, a, a society's opinion of people they've never even met and probably never will meet. Because, because uh, they had a little anti-Bolshevist uh, propaganda prior to the, the 20s in the 30s, but then when Russia became, was becoming the ally during World War II, suddenly when the action, Russia was a good guy. Who we thank today, Orwell, East Asia or West Asia, will be back after these messages. I'm Alan Watt. We're cutting through the matrix and reading from an excellent book called The Cultural Cold War. It's a book worth getting and going through your leisure because there's so much in it. And talking about Hollywood and how the CIA basically were directing Hollywood. And I will be going deeper after this talk into history to show you it isn't just the CIA. But this is to do with, with uh, their involvement in creating the culture from the 50s on for the Western world. And it said, Hollywood, thus it switched from making anti-Bolshevik films in the 20s and 30s to glorifying Russia as a wartime ally in films such as The North Star, Days of Glory, Song of Russia, and the notorious Mission to Moscow, which had actually whitewashed the Moscow trials and praised the Russians as defenders of democracy to producing a rash of anti-communist films in the 1950s, such as The Red Nightmare, The Red Menace, Invasion USA, I Was a Communist for the FBI, Red Planet Mars, <laughs> Iron Curtain, My Son John, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Walk East on Beacon Street, which was scripted and financed by the FBI, was Chai Edgar Hoover's personal favorite. Their titles as unconvincing as their plots, these films all revealed a neurotic obsession with the outsider, the unknown, the other. That puts me in mind of that military uh, think tank's projection for the future called known unknowns. I was looking at known unknowns as they feed all data into computers and wait for the results. So just as Captain America had switched from battling Nazis to battling communists, the attitude of American films towards Germany changed radically. The vanquished enemy now portrayed as heroic fighters and worthy opponents, such as Rommel, the Desert Fox, 52, the Sea Chase, the Enemy Below, etc. As Monday's enemies became Tuesday's friends, Hollywood showed how easy it could rip off the good and evil labels from one nation and paste them on another. And that's exactly what Orwell was saying in his book 1984 where when the government says we're now at war with East Asia we've always been at war with East Asia you better start parting it too but it's not too hard because the public really don't have much memory they don't and that's what they count on it's interesting that ties right in with surveys done in Canada to do with the war on Iraq and even though all the same medias blamed initially uh, one man in a cave in Afghanistan. Poll surveys were done by big polling companies 
And they said that within a few months, the media, when told, basically, had convinced the public that the originator of the plot was Saddam Hussein. And they all wanted to back up the American invasion of Iraq. That's how easy it was, just through propaganda and repetition, to change sites from one enemy to another. It's always been that way. While such films played well to a domestic audience and thralled to exaggerate claims of the communist menace, most Americans were now convinced that the Russians were coming and the bomb would soon fall in the night. Remember, I told you Bernays was involved in it. They brought all these boys on board, you see, because they had to get, it was a war for the minds. They needed people who understood the psychology of the masses. Very old science, actually. It wasn't new at all. This is... In the international market, they were poor performers. For a Europe still wounded by the, mem- the memories of fascism, the insensate hatred and verbal violence of Hollywood's anti-communist offerings were unattractive and extreme. Fearing better were Disney's cartoons and feel-good films such as Roman Holiday and The Wizard of Oz. But not all Europeans were seduced by these fix- fixative, or fictive paradises. Buried deep in the clauses of successive trade agreements, trade agreements, eh? starting with the Blum-Burns Accord of 1946, were provisions which guaranteed an increase in the quota of American films shown in countries such as France. Such agreements were met with indignant criticism in French intellectual circles, and even in 1948 led to violent street battles. Now in the 60s, the Royal Institute for International Affairs had a meeting in Britain with the CFR, its American branch, and it was in the newspapers at the time. Their whole purpose was to do with deciding who the U.S. or Britain should be given the lead in creating the world's culture. The world's culture. Because they, they knew they were working towards. If you've read their own books that they published themselves, they've always been working towards a world government. And they decided at the time in, in those meetings that most would be given to the U.S. That ties right in with this book. It says here, American strategists were surprisingly slow to respond to widespread resentment in Europe at the saturation levels of Hollywood imports. There was no diplomatic representation at the 1951 Cannes Film Festival, nor any formal delegation of American motion picture leaders, writers, technicians, or artists. By contrast, the Russians had sent their deputy minister of cinema, as well as a renowned director, Podov Kin who gave a brilliant resume of Soviet achievements. After receiving reports that America had looked very silly at Cannes, the U.S. government resolved to give the motion picture industry more attention. On 23rd of April 1953, after his appointment as special consultant to the governor on cinema, Cecil B. DeMille strode into C.D. Jackson's office, writing to Henry Luce two weeks later. DeMille said, said DeMille is very much on our side. I was quite impressed with the power of American films abroad. Back with more after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
Steinau and Watt were cutting through the matrix and giving us some information of how culture is produced and implemented on the publics of the world. And sometimes it's tailor-made. You'll look at your culture and you'll see what differences there are in your makeup, your cultural makeup, and alter it to suit. And this part here of the cultural Cold War is talking about Hollywood. And one of the people who were helping the CIA here, if not working right for them, was Cecil B. DeMille. And he says here, he is a theory to which I subscribe completely that the most effective use of American films is not to design an entire picture to cope with a certain problem, but rather to see to it that in a normal picture, the right line aside inflection, eyebrow movement, and so on, is introduced. He told me that any time I could give him a simple problem for a country or an area, he would find a way of dealing with it in a picture. Mill's acceptance of consultancy with the motion picture service was a coup for government propagandists. Working through 135 United States information service posts in 87 countries, the MPS had a huge distribution network to hand. Awash with government funds, it was effectively a producer with all the facilities available to a production company. It employed producer directors who were given top security clearance and assigned to films which articulated the objectives which the United States is interested in obtaining and which could best reach the predetermined audience that we as a motion picture medium must condition. It advised secret bodies like the Operations Coordinating Board on films suitable for international distribution. I don't know if people realize that even back then, one of the biggest exports of the United States was Hollywood movies. Still is. In June 54, it listed 37 films for showing behind the Iron Curtain, including Peter Pan, The Jolson Story, The Glenn Miller Story, The Boy from Oklahoma, Roman Holiday, Little Women, Showboat, The Cane Mutiny, Go Man Go, which is a history of Harlem Globetrotters, Alice in Wonderland, and Executive Suite. The NPS also regulated American participation in film festivals abroad, thus filling the embarrassing vacuum of the 1951 Cannes Festival. Naturally, it worked hard to exclude American motion picture producers and films which do not support American foreign policy. And remember, the foreign policy is often a policy which the American people have no idea of. They scream if they did. Which in some cases are harmful from being shown at international festivals. Instead, it pushed films like the Bob Methius story, Allied Artists 54, an almost perfect portrayal of the best phase of American life. Almost perfect portrayal, not a reality. A small-town boy with his family, his sweetheart, his career, his interest in sports, all building up to his two-time triumphs as one of the outstanding athletes in the history of the Olympics. If it hasn't got the American values we want on the screen, then we have to go start looking for a new set of values to publicize. It's amazing, eh? In the search for allies in Hollywood who best understood the propaganda problems of the U.S. and who were prepared to insert in their scripts and in their action the right ideas with the proper subtlety, C.D. Jackson, as usual, was embarrassed for choice. In January 54, he set down a list of friends who could be expected to help the government. He listed Cecil B. DeMille, 
Spiros P. Skouras and Daryl Zanuk at Fox, Nicholas Schenk, president of MGM, and producer Dory Sherry, Barney Balaban, president of Paramount, Harry and Jack Warner, James R. Granger, president of the RKO, Universal's president, Milton Ragnall, Columbia Pictures president, Harry Kahn, Herbert Yates at Republic, Walt and Roy Disney, and Eric Johnson of the Motion Picture Association. But CD's most valuable asset in Hollywood was CIA agent Carlson Alsop, Alsop, A-L-S-O-P. Working undercover at Paramount Studios, Alsop had been a producer and agent working on the MGM lot in the mid-1930s, then with Judy Garland in the late 1940s and early 50s, by which time he had already joined Frank Weisner's psychological warfare workshop. I mean, here's all these people completely trained in not only Bernays techniques, but even deeper stuff to do with warfare, because everything to them at the top is war, constant war. And they're in charge of the movie industry. They're in charge of the novel industry. They're in charge of the music industry. Everything that gives you culture. And they're also deciding what fashions you'll wear at the same time and what topics you'll prattle on about in the street, what fads you'll go through collectively as they claim to be spreading democracy. Weird the schmucks, eh? It says, <laughs> Psychological Warfare, Psychological Strategy Board. These reports were compiled in response to a double need, first to monitor communists and fellow travelers in Hollywood, and second to summarize the achievements and failures of a covert pressure group headed up by Carlton Alsop, charged with introducing specific themes into Hollywood films. Do you realize how much money Hollywood has spent since they started Gulf War I to the present on war movies? The Pentagon funds them. Also, young guys will get all romantic about war, thinking that they're indestructible and they're fighting the bad guys regardless. They'll find all the camaraderie they ever wanted and didn't have before amongst their brethren because all of these groups are fraternities. The military is a fraternity. Of course it is. You bond with them. And here they are turning out fiction to get folk to join up. It's either that or the draft. says here, also secret reports make extraordinary reading. They reveal just how far the CIA was able to extend its reach into the film industry, despite its claims that it sought no such influence. One report dated 24th of January 53 concentrated on the problem of black stereotyping in Hollywood. Under the heading Negroes in Pictures, also reported that he had secured the agreement of several casting directors to plant well-dressed Negroes as a part of the American scene without appearing too conspicuous or deliberate. Astonishing. Every, everyone gets used, you know. Even names all the movies they put them in, including some by Jerry Lewis, such as Caddy and so on. Caddy is C-A-D-D-Y. And it goes on and on and on. But remember, this book is giving out stuff that obviously the public are allowed to know if they care to. Most don't because the past to a young person at 18, even in the 50s, 
to the 50s, if you're living today, it's like antique history. It's got nothing to do with you. That's the failure of youth. They don't realize the importance of all of this. Incredible importance because, you see, they were controlling it after the 50s and 60s and 70s too. And a lot of that's in that book as well. They used the folk industry, the folk singing industry as well. And a lot of people thought it was left-wingers running the folk industry, folk singers. Then they went into the transitory stage between folk and electric guitar. And then they went into the rock business. I've talked before about that canyon in L.A. of where so many of them came out of all the musicians, the big big musicians, Laurel Canyon. And I had links on my sites on, on one of the programs I did to someone who's compiling a lot of the history of the big artists of the period. They all belonged to long military families. Military families, high ones, too. So the guys who were chasing around and trying to emulate were brought up in the best schools, private schools, for the establishment. Grew their hair long and came out to be radicals. So everyone followed them thinking we'd all be, we'd all be radicals. Because there's a much bigger game plan ahead, you see. It's nothing to do with fighting communism and all that kind of stuff at all. In fact, communism was funded from its inception by the West and fed right through its existence, from, mainly from the breadbasket of Canada and the U.S. Canada and the U.S. used to compete for the orders for Russia. They used to be in the papers all the time. Remember that other article I read from the U.S. military magazine that said we shall go on using our degeneracy to captivate the world because they like our degeneracy and if they don't, we'll make them like it and we can't lose. Tie that in with what they were doing during the Cold War and what the Russians were accusing them of doing. Remember at the top of Russia and at the top of the U.S., there was a coordination. Remember, too, that the Rees Commission said that they were, when you examined the big foundations, some of, a lot of them are in this book, actually, these foundations. Senator Dodd was told their purpose was to blend the Soviet system seamlessly with that of the West. We have that today. That's the dialectic in action. That's how it works. You need an opposite to build up your forces, to change the people at home too. Remember what Professor Carla Quigley said, wars are intended to change the cultures of the opposing parties. And it does. And governments grow incredibly large because of wars. Whether it's a cold war or otherwise, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You have to go back and back into history to find out who was already operating on this level before the CIA, before OSS, 
who had the abilities, who had the setup, who was already using and had funded and set up foundations for a global society. Now remember, I said the OSS office during World War II, and you'll find that in Professor Carol Quigley's book, Tragedy and Hope. Their headquarters was Chatham House. Chatham House is the head that was before and still is World War II. It was the head for the Royal Institute for International Affairs, which is the British CFR. The Royal Institute for International Affairs is a private think tank, we're told. It's into everything, hundreds of different things across the planet, including your food supply. It came out from an organization, two organizations actually, that were working for the British elite. One was the Cecil Rhodes Foundation and the Lord Alfred Milner Foundation, both sworn to bring in a form of world government based on Britain. They backed and set up the League of Nations, which was the precursor of the United Nations, and they're behind the UN too. That's who had all of these techniques. They were already using these techniques before World War II, before the OSS, before the CIA came along. Who was Professor Carol Quigley? He wasn't just a professor. He was professor of history at the Foreign Service School of Georgetown University, the Foreign Service School. Formerly taught at Princeton and Harvard He's done research in archives of France, Italy, and England. He's the author of the widely praised Evolution of Civilizations, a member of the editorial board of the Monthly Current History. He's a frequent lecturer and consultant for public and semi-public agencies, public and semi-public agencies, very important semi-public. He's a member of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the American Anthropological Association and the American Economic Association, as well as various historical associations. He's been lecturer on Russian history at the Industrial College of the Armed Forces since 51, and on Africa at the Brookings Institution since 61. He's lectured in many other places, including the U.S. Naval Weapons Laboratory, the Foreign Service Institute of the State Department, and the Naval College at Norfolk, Virginia. In 58, he was a consultant to Congressional Select Committee, which set up the present National, National Space Agency. Collaborator in history to the Smithsonian Institution after 57, in connection with the establishment of the New Museum of History and Technology. In 64, he went to the Navy Postgraduate School, Monterey, California, as consultant to Project Seabed where he's trying to visualize what American weapon systems would be like in 12 years. Now, you know yourself, he's part of the groups I've been talking about in the cultural Cold War. But what else was he? He knew Alfred Zimmerman. Alfred Zimmerman ran the communist newspapers for Britain. Winston Churchill supposedly hated communism. Yet it was the right hand aide to Winston Churchill, Mr. Zimmerman. Mr. Zimmerman was the man 
who brought Professor Carl Quigley in as the historian for the Council on Foreign Relations. They have their own historian. Now, I've warned people before, if you join groups, the chances are you've been led up the garden path. If you join a side or a group, be blinded to the big picture because what you want to hear in that group will be supplied to you along with disinformation and you'll never see that you're being used and these guys are specialists at creating big groups if they don't create it they'll take it over because they love it why not it's already ready made for you put your man at the top you control the minds of thousands sometimes millions Professor Quigley was the man who picked lots of people to be Rhodes Scholars and send them off to Oxford, England. Bill Clinton was one of them, only one of them. There's many of them. What does Quigley say about left-wing, right-wing, and so on? In his own book, Tragedy and Hope, on page 949, he describes how the left wing will see what's happening in the world through all the big movements and blame the communists. He'll, he'll, he'll go into the other side too and how the, the, the other side will see the right wing controlling things. And he goes on in 1950 to say this, this myth like all fables does in fact have a modicum of truth. It does exist and has existed for a generation, an international Anglophile network. And I'll, and I'll continue this, it's very important after this break. unknown 
and I believe his role in history is significant enough to be known. The roundtable groups have already mentioned in this, in this book several times, notably in connection with the formation of the British Commonwealth. The British Commonwealth was to be the nucleus, since it was already established, of a new world order. A new world order widely discussed, in fact, the League of Nations and the setting up of the United Nations. They would use the, the existing British Commonwealth as, as the setup, the, the model, and it would expand it to be a global system. It says, the American branch of this organization, sometimes called the Eastern Establishment, has played a very significant role in the history of the United States in the last generation. The roundtable groups were semi-secret discussion and lobbying groups organized by Lyon Curtis, Philip Kerr, who was Lord Lothian in Britain. Lord Lothian, by the way, who was head of the Royal Institute for International Affairs in Britain, was who Mr. Hess visited when he took the Messerschmitt over to Britain to ask why they'd double-crossed Germany. It says, uh, this was done on behalf of Lord Milner, the dominant trustee of the Rhodes Trust, in the two decades before, up to 1925. The original purpose of these groups was to seek to federate the English-speaking world along lines laid down by Cecil Rhodes and William T. Stead. And the money for the organizational work came originally from the Rhodes Trust, the Rhodes Foundation, merged with the Milner Trust and Foundation, and then it became the Royal Institute for International Affairs. The American branch is the Council on Foreign Relations, set up by a member, Mr. Pratt. And they've been running the system and been behind the wars ever since. They had the parallel government that Mrs. Thatcher said she now belonged to. I'll be back with more tomorrow. So from Hamish and myself, it's good night from Interior Canada. And may your God or your gods go with you.